For a film that revolves around compulsive flirtation, serial seduction, and no less than 10 bouts of bed hopping, it is somewhat ironic that La Grande began in a state of frustration, dysfunction, and finally having to settle for a second choice. Like many Jewish artists, Max Offels had fled his native Germany after the Nazis had seized power in 1933. After working in France, Holland and Italy, he finally made it to America. But unlike other emigre directors such as Fritz Lang, Billy Wilder and Fred Cinnamon, Offels' time in Hollywood proved very frustrating. And it was only after the war that he got the chance to direct again. Two of those films, Caught and The Reckless Moment, were efficient noir thrillers. But it was in 1948, with a romantic masterpiece, Letter from an Unknown Woman, that Offels once again found material suitable to his temperament. Not only was it set in the past, it was set in a particular place in a particular past. Fantasieck, Vienna, the heart of the Habsburg Empire at the very height of its cultural expression. Yet, Offels' film was never designed to be an exercise in mere nostalgia. His canvas was far more penetrative than that. It was about the vagaries, illusions and elusive purity of romantic love. It was with the romantic melodrama that Offels first made his name. And it is with his unique take on the romantic impulse that Offels' legacy is most readily associated. I've seen you somewhere, I know. I followed you upstairs and watched you in your box. But I couldn't place you. And I had to speak with you. I know how this sounds. I assure you, in this case, it's true. Letter from an Unknown Woman was adapted from a novella by Stefan Zweig, who is perhaps more known to today's audiences as the author who inspired Wes Anderson to make The Grand Budapest Hotel, a detail we shall come back around to later. But for now, let us note that Letter from an Unknown Woman was produced by Walter Wanger. In the wake of that film's success, Wanger suggested that Offel's tackle another romantic novel, this time one by Honoré de Balzac, La Duchesse de Langeais. First published in 1834, La Duchesse had already been filmed several times, and as recently as 1942. So you might ask yourself, why were Offels and Wanger intent on a new version when the previous had been made just a few years earlier? Because Wanger told Offels that an offer of the title role had lured out of retirement none other than Greta Garbo. This despite the fact that the notoriously reclusive star, once the biggest in the world, had not appeared in a film in almost a decade. Emboldened, Offels headed back to Europe, where he set about writing his adaptation, and things advanced to the point that Garbo did a number of screen tests for the part. It is hard to know precisely what attracted Garbo to the role of the Duchess, but consider this. The Duchess is enjoying her blameless marriage to the Duke when she sets eyes on, and is immediately smitten by a young officer, the Marquise de Montriveau. A very protracted courtship ensues, until finally the Duchess mysteriously disappears. At which point the confused Marquis sets off in search of her, and finds she has retreated to a convent in Spain, where she has been living her life in sacred seclusion as Sister Teresa. I want to be alone. Where have you been? I suppose I can cancel the Vienna contract? I just want to be alone. You're going to be very much alone, my dear madame. This is the end. However, as production for La Duchesse drew tantalisingly close, Wanger's funding fell through, and not only was cinema denied a return of one of its greatest icons, Offels had to settle for a different producer with a different project and a different level of star. 
Offal's new producer was Sasha Gordine, and it was Gordine who proposed an adaptation of Arthur Schnitzler's play Reigen. Today, Schnitzler is perhaps most remembered for having provided the source material for what turned out to be Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Another detail we shall come back around to later. But for now, let us note that in 1950, Schnitzler was known for having scandalised audiences in the interwar years, with a play that proved so shocking it was rarely performed and, when it was performed, caused near riots and resulted in legal action. The charge? Pornography. Reigen depicts a series of affairs, ten different characters each involved in their own illicit trysts. And when one of those trysts ends, one of the lovers leaves for another rendezvous with another lover, who in turn, post-coital, departs for yet more infidelity. On and on it goes, until finally, the couples unwittingly bring us back around to the very first person. Hence the title Reigen, from the German word for round, or in French, La Ronde. Schnitzler had sensed his play would be met with hostility even before anyone had read it, because, although he wrote it between 1897 and 1898, he took the precautionary step of waiting three years to have it published, and then only privately, by Schnitzler himself. The select few within his social group who did read it immediately recognised its merits, but it still took him three more years to find a publisher courageous enough to be associated with the material. However long it took Schnitzler to find a publisher, it was a further 17 years, in other words, after World War I, that any impresario was daring enough to put it on stage. And even then, not in Schnitzler's native city of Vienna, but in Berlin. The Vienna premiere did not happen until 1921, almost a quarter of a century after he had first set pen to paper. The reception in Vienna was perhaps worse than anywhere else, where the criticism which saw Schnitzler brought to court was couched in anti-Semitic terms. Yet, even though the judge ruled the play was not pornographic, the experience proved so miserable that Schnitzler decided to withdraw the play from production in German-speaking countries. Which was how the film wound up being made in France, and how it landed in the lap of Max Offels. And with that, Offels came back around to the early years of his career, 1932 to be precise, when he had directed Liebelei, which had originally been written for the stage by Arthur Schnitzler. But there are several other things that unite the stories. Both are set in turn-of-the-century Vienna, both centre on illicit affairs, and both strongly feature Vienna's great gift to music, the waltz. But again, Offels' use of the walls was much more than mere window dressing. It was central to the meticulous way he designed La Ronde. Schnitzer's play is circular in construction, and Offels took that idea, and with his fellow writer Jack Nathanson, pushed it further, framing the stories with a narrator, played by Anton Walbrook, whom we first see walking through Vienna at night. But it's not really Vienna. 
It is Vienna on a soundstage in a film studio in Paris. And that is crucial because Offal's take on the material is one of illusion and artifice. The narrator presents himself as our master of ceremonies and he walks us through to a small square where a carousel may provide amusement to the public during the day, but now that it is night, another sort of amusement arrives. Appearing as if she were a delicacy on a turntable in a cafeteria, we meet Leocadie, a prostitute played by Simone Signoret. And so the merry dance begins. Off she goes to encounter Franz, who is a soldier. And as each assignation ends, Walbrook returns to link the stories. Finished with Leocadie, Franz then meets Marie, a parlour maid, played by Simone Simon, who later consorts with a young gentleman, Alfred, who then goes on to rendezvous with Emma, a young wife, played by Daniel Dagayot, who, in turn, goes back to her husband, Charles. And that encounter proves to be the fulcrum around which the entire construct turns. Because it is finally about the only traditional couple in all the vignettes. They are married, but unhappily so. And arriving at the midpoint in the story, Offels and his cinematographer Christian Matras deliberately composed the event with careful symmetry. It is the sort of thing you expect to see in any film made by Wes Anderson. In fact, if you look closer at the Grand Budapest Hotel, you will not only see such visual symmetry, you will notice narrative symmetries as well. The multiple memoirs, narrators, romances, trains, cars, motorcycles, concierges, lobby boys, chefs, bedrooms, foyers. Let's leave the Grand Budapest Hotel and get back to the salons of Vienna, because we need to meet with Anna, a seamstress played by Odette Joyeux. When Emma is done with Charles, she goes on to meet a poet, Robert, who then meets an actress, Charlotte, played by Issa Miranda. The graceful linking between the stories hints at both the ephemera of passion and the durability of passion as a motivating force in human behaviour. It makes the world go round. And with Issa Miranda, we might take pause, because precise as Miranda's performance was, she was not Offal's first choice. He had wanted Marlene Dietrich, and although Dietrich had agreed to the part, scheduling conflicts got in the way, and instead, the nearest glimpse we get of her is when Miranda, lying back in bed, takes out a cigarette and lights it up. Anyone familiar with Dietrich's screen persona would have instantly recognised the visual echo from any number of her films, A Foreign Affair, Destry Rides Again and Blonde Venus, and right along to the Shanghai Express, Morocco and the Blue Angel. The nod to Dietrich is another important note because it brings into play another conceit in awful cinema and that is the idea of life as a performance. No matter whether the characters were created by Balzac, Zweig or Schnitzler, Offels presents them so that they are acting the role of lover, seducer, mistress, husband and cuckold. 
and then Offals incorporates that into the film's visual design so that no encounter is allowed to go by without people dressing and undressing, as if putting on costumes, checking their appearance in mirrors as if they were about to go out on parade, or taking off makeup to admit to the deception. And then Offals doubles down on that conceit, frequently composing the images so that we are looking through doors or the characters are placed against windows so that they appear as portraits sitting within a frame. Made in 1950, it is interesting to compare La Ronde with another film set in Vienna, but released the year before. Carol Reads the Third Man is a very different story with a very different tone and taking place immediately after World War II, set in a markedly different era. However, the two films do share a similar visual style. While La Ronde cinematographer Christian Matras does not dress Imperial Vienna in the deep shadows that Robert Krasker draped across the bombed-out capital. Both opted for repeatedly setting the camera at a Dutch tilt, which consciously unbalanced the frame, indicating that some sort of gravity had somehow shifted, or morality was seeking a new alignment. One final thing to note is the way Offals moved his camera. Beginning with a carousel sequence, he repeatedly put it on tracks to provide gentle motion to the sequences, not only linking us from one to the other, but also showing the mobility of the characters. No matter which strata of society they are from, they are relentlessly moving through space, walking across rooms, through doorways, along corridors, and most telling of all, up and down staircases. Several filmmakers are celebrated for their silken camera moves. F.W. Murnau, Orson Welles, Stanley Donan and Jacques Demy. But few took their cue from Max Offels as explicitly as Stanley Kubrick. From The Killing and Paths of Glory, right through to A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining and Full Metal Jacket, it sometimes felt that Kubrick had Offels' film on hand to figure out how to track back through rooms, warfront trenches, shopping centres, aristocratic mansions, hotel corridors and army barracks. Which brings us to Eyes Wide Shut. Adapted from Schnitzer's Traum novella or Dream Story, the release of Kubrick's film in 1999 provided an unwitting closing of the circle that Schnitzler had opened up by setting the story at the start of the century. And in the very centre of that century came Max Offel's La Ronde. How's that for symmetry? <laughs>